welcome to one of 200 the new zealand international politics podcast today i have two guests joining me uh friend of the cast ross who has previously joined us to talk trans rights and the nurse strikes and new new guest potential friend of the cast <laughs> uh mikey a, a youth health nurse specialist and nurse educator Welcome to the cast, both of you. Kia it's nice to be back. Thank you for having me. So I was saying before we started recording that mental health is, is something that we've been wanting to do coverage of for a while now, especially with some of the rhetoric out there, some of the misinformation, the obvious political pitfalls of it, and the kind of political games that get played with it as well. You know, it, it fits right in the space of, of media and political analysis that we do. But the time hasn't really felt right to do it. And I, I don't personally have the expertise to cover it. So thank you both for, for coming on to, to have the discussion with me, uh, because I think it's a really important one and one that often gets lost in, uh, you know, for, for better and for worse in, um clickbait stories uh, about personal tragedy or point scoring uh, between uh, political rivals um, or just just huge amounts of, of data, which is very difficult for the public to pass in any way that makes it useful. I mean, you have celebrities and, and the like kind of weighing in uh, here and there through the last you know, decade, I guess, who will get some spotlight shone on the issues for a while or maybe about some specific issues but the policy hasn't really shifted in in quite some time at least in terms of the outcomes now at the previous election labor made some promises around mental health and and mental health funding uh, in light of some of the pretty horrific statistics that that new zealand faces in in that space and just in the last couple of weeks, that's been brought up again because we're not really seeing that funding um, have any effect <laughs> anywhere. If we're seeing that funding appear or, or materialize at all. And I think the latest from was Andrew Little was to say, oh, he's very worried to hear about that and he'll look into it. <laughs> but again. Is there anything more this Labour government than earmarking hundreds of millions of dollars for mental health and then not letting us have it, but helping us feel better about having it by keeping it for it safe for us? Like <laughs> it's just, yeah, it feels very, uh, feels very emblematic of their yeah. stuff. I feel like there's a review coming on in the very near future. Um, oh, good. Yeah, with, like with, a, re- a review of how the money's been spent. Do you mean, or or what's services? happened to it? Mm. Or how, yeah, how it's going to be spent or where the money that was earmarked for it has gone with the DHBs are the issue. Um, yeah. And I'm kind of worried that it, it, it might be used as some form of, of pressure to, to push the centralization uh, as opposed to just getting on with that. Um, as well, needs. My, like my sense being like tightly connected with mental health services from a professional um, side of things is that the the assumption that I think everyone in those services I've been holding is that the government's undergoing this mental health review process 
that was a review of all the services. And there was a sense that nothing was going to be done until there was a plan forward. Um, the downside of that being we've got business as usual, plus no increased funding when we have increased needs of the community. And we're kind of seeing the result of services that are um, have expanding wait lists that are having to actually increase the acuity of the people of, of you know, the they're only seeing people at higher acuity levels than they used to and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's kind of like, that's how I see it on the ground is mm. um, I don't think anyone expected an immediate funding of stuff because we don't actually, we don't actually know what would be beneficial yet is my, yeah, if that makes sense. I mean, we kind of do. We've got, <laughs> we've got years of research and data into what is beneficial for community mental health services and what's beneficial within our community to foster, um, you know, mental health. Um, and we know all of that, but yeah, yeah, it's a bit complicated. I, don't know. I think that's, I think that's the, 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 the thing, isn't it, Michael, Mikey? Cause we talked about this on Twitter, which I think started this whole thing, which was hmm. the thing that seems to get missed out from this conversation over and over and over again is what's the cause of, poor mental health and well-being in the first place and that just seems to be like the big part of the discussion that governments certainly don't want to discuss and it because it's icky and because it comes back to capitalism and and deep-seated inequity and certainly in the work that, that i do in the counseling space like so often you get people who are struggling with depression and anxiety because of poor housing because they're overworked mm -hmm. and they're being underpaid or they're underworked or they are um, they've got poor physical health outcomes or you know, all of these other things which impact which we know as you said we know what what works we know what impacts on people but you can't say we have poor mental health because we have a society that makes you mentally unwell because then yeah. we'd have to do things like house people and make sure people were <laughs> fed. And, and that doesn't go down well with our driving friends in Remuera. So they're not going to do it. And it just, it always seems to come back to this sort of personal responsibility, this sort of weird mixture of you can fix mental health by having a cup of tea and a biscuit with someone, or you have to go into you know, into like crisis care. And I just, I, yeah. it, it infuriates me how much of the conversation gets missed and how much of it gets pushed back to personal responsibility. Hmm. Like one of the things I find real hilarious is a lot of the mental health programs we have out in my, well, like where I work, they're almost all titled with the word choice in, in the name mm. for their program. Um, like the, um, the Kappa model, which is the choices and partnership you know model for for mental health which you know just choice and partnership just hints immediately at that personal responsibility your mental health issues are your choice um, in fact there's a counseling program called your choice and yeah it's just kind of like it's so embedded that that neoliberal individualistic responsibility stuff in our responses to mental health issues and it's present so clearly in the names of the programs I didn't realize that uh, mental health programs were just employee well-being programs. Yeah, that's um, I know. Yeah, like on a broad, on a broad. Yeah, you know, at, and like although like a hundred percent our mental health services are underfunded. At the same time, the cause of our mental health epidemic or or so-called you know the the increasing mental health issues in our in our communities they're not caused by a lack of 
counseling availability. They're caused by all these other, you know, other factors of life, you know, and the fact that we only ever look at the service side and not the cause side, it's just, yeah, it's a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Like it's, it's just, it's wild to me how there's this idea that you can somehow cognitive behavioral therapy, your way out of not being able to make the rent every week. Like you can't DBT yourself into a house that doesn't have mold in it. And I, 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 it just, as someone who, like say, who, who works in this space and has, has, you know, works in South Auckland and sees a lot of this stuff all the time. Like it's, as you said, it, it, it's this idea that it's choice. Like you can mm-hmm. just somehow talk yourself into a better mental health outcome. And it's just this complete divorcing of mental well-being from social well-being, from physical well-being, from, uh, you know, like a cultural disengagement. Like there's so many factors to it, but all we look at is, you know, have you tried, like, have you, have you tried yoga? Have you tried some mindfulness? Like we've got an yeah. app now. <laughs> Fuck your app. Oh, right. Fucking app. <laughs> <laughs> people want houses they want fed like this oh, yeah. it's, it's not hard yeah is there a sense in which our mental health services are treated both by the health system and the government policymakers as the proverbial ambulance i'm not, I'm not sure about ambulance yeah like i i almost wonder whether it's more I, I, like my sense is actually that it's probably about reducing the burden on the capitalist system, if that makes sense. Um, making sure that you do have a lot of happy consumers who are ready to consume products and uh, continue working in shit places, you know? Like Amazon's well-being cube. Yeah. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, like, I don't, I don't think that... Um, like, we've got our crisis team, which I would say would be the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, but they're not even that, to be honest. The ambulance is literally going to still be the ambulance at the bottom. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, cause, like if I think about the way that our, our most of our mental health services work, which they don't really, to be honest, mm. like, they don't really work for anybody. I, I don't see them actually addressing any of, like, the where the shit hits the fan kind of ambulance at the bottom of the cliff thing. It, does that make sense? I feel like I just said a bunch of words, but (laughs) (laughs) you definitely said a bunch of words, but they made sense as well. (laughs) I think it's that like, so I'm, um, I'm, I'm registered with uh, the New Zealand association of counselors and counseling is a weird sort of aspect of mental health whereby like you can, anyone can say that they're a counselor in the same way that anyone can say that they're a mechanic but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've had any training. But to become a registered counsellor is a, it's either a master's or it's a full bachelor, um, bachelor of applied counselling. So it's you know it's a, it's it, it it's a proper profession. But counselling is not part. The, the government doesn't see you as part of the the sort of more clinical side of mental health. Like we're not. I'll, you know I'll have to triple check the wording on this, but we're not actually privy to like some of the same standards and and same expectations as other health professions and it's just like so you've got this whole group of people who are quite very highly qualified and like able to deal with trauma and grief counseling and everything else who have to fight really hard for any kind of share of of any kind of funding or any kind of you know stuff that comes our way and like the the lack of 
sort of oversight, the lack of, of joined up, you know, having come from education, which is, you know, slightly different, like to, to come into this and you're like, okay, so we're part of this, this group that does this kind of thing in mental health, but we're not viewed as being a th- like proper according to this group. And, and we, it's just, it, it seems very unserious to me. Like mm. it, it seems odd to me that that's how things are, are laid out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, I find that um, uh, disconnect or, or uh, like real obvious when like counselors aren't part of specialist mental health services in the DHB. Mm. They don't, they don't factor in, but every time the, the DHB says, Oh, look, we're at capacity. We can't see this person. Can't you just get them to see a counselor? Like the, the, the way that we're actually dealing with the overflow from mental health services is to utilize um, counseling wherever we can access it, whether that's through some of the funded programs or having people self-access it. But the fact is like the DHB mental health services rely on counselors to actually reduce the work that they do without ever actually viewing counselors with that same level of like respect as clinicians, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense about some of the disconnects across the health system in this space as well. Yeah, but I guess you'd only really see it if you're on the ground mm. uh, because it's the, the way these things connect is, is so often left out of the conversation. And go, going you know, even into the way that our economy or people's actual living conditions affect these things as well. Again, they're left out of the conversation for the most part. This government, though, under, uh, under Labour, they, they made similar claims or, um, you know, promises uh, in the last government as well. Um, so, so it said similarly, they're going to they're do more funding for uh, mental health. And, and we're into our second term, you know, without the, the brakes being on from New Zealand first or, you know, whatever you want to say. And, yeah, you've got the minister basically saying, I don't know what's happening. Well, so yeah. where where does where do you think that comes from? Like, is that just that the ministry is absolutely cooked, or is it a a lack of actual will? I, is this something that Labour is happy to use as a vote winner, as opposed to something that they're actually serious about? Mikey, <laughs> thanks, thanks. <laughs> um, I, I like. I- I, I get the idea that some people would say that that what labor do is put aspirational stuff there so you know where their values are and then what the delivery of it ends up being a little bit more complicated at 100% I think well not 100% that that definitely not that much percentage but <laughs> but I, like I think part of the issue is the it, like focusing just on the services the mental health services what actually needs to happen within those services is revolutionary stuff in terms of like, we need a complete overhaul of how um, we have that disconnect between the primary mental health services, which I consider counselors to be a big part of, um, but who operate within this, like this unconnected kind of like, you know, community-based kind of system stuff, a huge disconnect from that and from the secondary uh, tertiary mental health services. And within those tertiary and secondary mental health services, there's a lack of funding that's still there. There's a lack of actual workforce. Um, One of the locals, um, Child Adolescent Mental Health Services, has been pretty much operating with a 30% vacancy for the past two years, thereabouts. 
uh, with thir- I remember at one point they had about 13 um, FTE positions unfilled and it had been that way for all- over a year. And so like to fix that, that's, I don't, it's not even just a throw money at it problem because you don't have the workforce. And then you also have a culture that's been set up within these systems that nobody wants to work with because of like the, the nature of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you have a high turnover and then you, you have like even the psychiatric dominated nature of it, which kind of, um, although we have the, all these different professional paradigms that are pretty decent from a mental health clinician perspective at providing appropriate and evidence-based mental health support still gets kind of overpowered by the psychiatric paradigm rather than uh, you know an ocu- occupational therapist holistic kind of approach to mental health. And, all, all, and then you've even got, you know, what do you do when like this, so that, you know, you've got that level for the moderate end of the mental health care, but then you look at the more severe mental health presentations and the lack of actual services that we have that um, do that well um, without reproducing some really negative stuff that's been on historically within those psychiatric services. Mm. That's a, that's a huge, that is a huge monster. And like, I don't think, a six six years of a government is going to suss that out, especially without the political. I wouldn't say it's even political will because the will. It's not about necessarily at that point about the politics. It's actually from the health side them itself. They would have to go to war against people who have invested interests in the system as it currently is within um, healthcare kind of structures and hierarchies and uh, managers and all of that. Like though, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I think you make a really a really good point there around the the psychiatric model. And I, I wrote a I wrote a blog post on this the other week where I tried to access after after an, uh, being assaulted at work a couple of years ago, uh, I was unable to return to my workplace. Who'd have thought? And um, ended up trying to access support through ACC, and they said they needed uh, um, evidence of mental injury. Fine. I ended up getting. Uh, a GP's diagnosis, a psychologist's diagnosis, a neuropsychologist's diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, and ACC said that that was was insufficient. Mm. So you've got, I I would say that's quite a hefty amount of evidence, but they said, no, I needed to see a psychiatrist, which Mm. they paid for, but that was still, it took over a year from the initial assault and over, I think it was about nine months from when I made the claim for mental injury to actually get any kind of payout. And it's, I, I, I'm very lucky that I have a partner who's an employed that we were able to negotiate something around living arrangements and stuff. But if I had been, like, I can't imagine trying to advocate for myself and get a fourth like mm-hmm. psychiatric opinion without that kind of safety net. And the answer is there's going to be a lot of people who, will not have made it that far 100 percent, yeah and like that's part of that disconnect as well as just like all the rest of our health services we have um the primary healthcare end of things which is operates mostly under for profit mm. um and from mental health side of things is almost entirely um unfunded it needs to be almost essentially funded by um, the people accessing it, unless there's some ACC funding specifically, they pretty much only use it for um, sexual harm situations. Yeah. And it, you know, it, what that means is that there'll be, you know, a privileged few from wealthy backgrounds who can afford to pay for counseling, which is what hundred, hundred and twenty dollars for a session. 
you know, that can find a counselor that they can connect with um, culturally and personally, because if you look at the demographics of counseling, it, it's not particularly diverse. <laughs> and, um, and 100 to 120 is like a minimum, right? Like, yeah. 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 And it goes, it goes high. It goes and, high. Yeah. If you're seeing psychotherapists or psychologists it gets higher. Yeah. And it's, that, that's just it. Is it's, it's a user pays model and it is expensive. And that's something that as someone who's, accessed counseling as a client before i've gone god you know that's an awful lot of money for an hour of sitting opposite from someone but when you'd start looking at it from the the counseling perspective especially if you're in private practice you know you're you're not seeing like eight clients a day you know it's not eight hundred dollars a day you're actually Hmm. counselors i know who work for ngos on a contract basis they'll be lucky if they make if they you know, many think about client cancellations and such. Like they, they're lucky if they're going to get a hundred bucks per day yeah. uh, in some cases, and it's and it's not it's not a steady income. Like it's very very tough out there, and it's it's not. There's no financial support if you want to go into this mm. this uh, if you want to go into this profession. And what you were saying about diversity in that workforce, one of the things that I've found really interesting about going back to to study this is you have a very diverse pool of students, but you have a very traditionally white Western form of study to become a counselor that for all it pays the usual sort of lip service to Maori and Pacific Island uh, modalities, it sees them as a modality mm. and which is not the case. And you are automatically like the number of people in my, my cohort from the first to the second year dropped by 50%. And when I think about the people who, are, who did not come back for that second year, like that's, that, that, that seems very telling to me. And mm-hmm. it's that there's this lip service about how they want a diverse workforce and the support that they'll give and how they're making sure that counselors coming through are understanding of tetirity and various other things, but it's not actually borne out in how we are educating that workforce and how we are supporting that workforce in order to get them out there where they need to be. Hmm. And then even then, like they're, they're utilizing, you know, frameworks like CBT, which are not grown from Aotearoa. Hmm. It's imported models that have been tried on, you know, kind of like a European target audience. That's how it's been framed and structured. And the evidence is all from European or American based studies, not on a New Zealand context. Yeah. So it's, you know, yeah. and again, that, that very individualistic modality of I am in control of, you know, like I'm in control of this. And if I just think about it in a different way and it's like, yeah, that's fine. That works in some situations, but it's not, it's not really authentic to a lot of people who live in this country who need responsive mental health services. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge gap. You know, it's I, I've I've heard of people trying to access services and basically just being given like a CBT mm. worksheet or have you tried an app? And that's not that's not appropriate. Mm. It's not respectful. No. And like where funding is available for counseling, you get three to four sessions mm. and that's it. And the funders are always trying to squeeze it into a smaller and smaller. Can't yeah. you be productive for less? Can't you yeah. get more done for less? Um, yeah. It's really you, you talk about this individual framework, right? But it's not only being applied to the people who are seeking support or seeking um, services, 
but also to the people working in the industry. There's this whole framework that sounds as if is is missing for counsellors, for uh, other mental health workers that exists only very barely, if at all, for a lot of people. So in terms of administration, in terms of even just booking clientele, uh, you know, uh, linking up with community providers, linking up with the health services, the wider health services, it sounds just like none of it's there. No, like there is no, like when we talk about the mental health system, when it comes to the primary healthcare end of it, there is no system. There's not in any definition of the term. There's no, there's no like structures. There's no, um, you know, unified funding. There's, there's most of the time there, there's individual um, practitioners. Sometimes they'll be gathered around um, some NGO and that's kind of the extent of it. Um, which is why like six, the, the, some of the research in New Zealand around um, where people access primary mental health services, over 66% of it is just GPs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of like the only thing that a lot of people have access to. And I don't know if you've ever had to talk to your GP about mental health issues. It's not particularly the ideal person that you want to talk to. Often. I think you can get lucky. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can get lucky, but it's, even then you've you try you have to fit within this primary healthcare model yeah. of like 15 minute appointments if you say it's mental health you get 30 but you still pay a bit you know it's, yeah yeah um and at best you get like an even more watered down cbt thing and some medication which you know not to medication has value 100% but when it's the only thing that people have access to um is their gps for mental health support we then end up using medication in place of an actual supportive system and in place of um, actually supportive transformational stuff in the communities that would make life better for people to live anyway. I think even with medication, um, you know, which you're generally going to, as you say, what, nearly 80, 60 to 70% of people accessing mental health services is through their GP. The number of, I guess, anecdotes, um, but stories I've seen of people having to be coached about how to access that medication by saying the right things to their GPs is just obscene because, you know, you have to, you have to have the right kind of GP. You need to be able to say the right things. You have to have already tried particular things. Um, and if you haven't, the chances that they're going to sign off on um, a pharmaceutical product are just cut in half at, at a minimum. I think also it's, it's, it's very easy to, if someone is presenting with anxiety to get a script for sertraline or something. And like I say that, that as, as Mikey said, medication is, is a useful and important part of mental health provision. But it's like, if you've got lots of clients turning up with headaches and you're prescribing Panadol, you're not actually fixing the cause of the headaches. Like someone can come on and go on sertraline, for example, for three months, come off sertraline. If you've not identified the source of the anxiety, which could be, as I said, it can be housing, it can be money, it can be all of these other things. If you've not made a dent in those, if you've not started to address that, they, they come off the medication, the problem's still there. Yeah. And like, even with, you know, even if you do get access to medication, like, I think that we've kind of made a mistake in overpromising how effective medication is. Um, and I think the medical system is at fault for that. Because if you look at the research of the efficacy of most um, mental health medication for mild to moderate presentations of anxiety, depression, 
you're looking at kind of like a 30% efficacy rate, which is pretty piss poor, especially when you combine it with the negative side effects that people have, um, which can be kind of broad and, and stuff. And like, although like hundred percent, like there is a value in it, it's, it's often overstated. And like, unless you do address those, um, the drivers of the causes or, if the causes isn't an immediate material thing, but historic trauma or, um, you know, like learned, learned kind of like coping mechanisms that got us through our childhood real good, but are no longer useful to us as adults. Um, without that additional kind of support, you're not really kind of going to change anything for anybody, you mm. know? Yeah. And then, then you have this gap, as you said, it's not really a system so much as mm. individuals and small groups trying to make things work and finding time to talk to each other if they're lucky uh, and that sort of creates these gaps where individuals can come in making some very strong claims about what they can do within that space yeah. and i'm thinking i'm thinking mike king and the, the whole gun boot initiative yeah. and there's something that just raises some red flags with mm. me i think it's something quite dangerous around individuals promising lots and making lots of noise but not actually working with the people who are doing this every day certainly i've i've heard some stories about um people working with with gumboot not getting paid there being issues around you know around the people who are able to access that kind of support what that looks like and it's just yeah in the absence of a, a decent plan in the absence of evidence-based process and a proper system you just create these these vacuums with very interesting situations arising yeah some of some of the problem that we had was um suddenly the gumboot money was available and so ngos started to feel that the pressure was off them a little bit to be providing some of what they were providing so they actually started turning down people that they would have otherwise accepted because they're having to still do what they can with the crumbs that they've been given um, and actually, I think in the end, we didn't, at least in some of the areas that I'm aware of, um, what actually ended up happening was people were promised support that they didn't actually end up receiving. Um, and then providers being promised payment that they didn't get paid in as well, mm -hmm. which, I mean, one of the things that I find, because, you know, in my, my clinical practice, because uh, I work in a, a nurse-led youth clinic, so we are, I'd say 60% of what I do is mental health support but um, nowhere near as skilled as a counselor, but just kind of in the assessment, brief intervention and like supporting towards the best kind of things, but then implementing some positive youth development in the frameworks of that. But I often find young people come to me saying, oh, I've been told that I need to seek help when I experience these things, but so far there is no help. So hmm. what's, what's the reason that I'm even speaking out? Cause I'm, you know, they, they come to see me and I even try and connect them up with things and I'm limited in what I can do. And they suddenly realize that there's been promise of the system that will support them, but there is no system that's supporting. That's that gap between the rhetoric and the outcome again, right? Yeah. Um, where there's very much a set of messaging around uh, what you can do if you're struggling with mental health. And you'll, you know, you'll just see them around towns and posters um, or, or in your workplace, um, just speak to a mate or like call this number, you know, yeah. um, don't be silent. Uh, but as you say, you know, if it's something like one of the main workplace ones, I think is EAP yeah. and you can access it and like for one to three sessions, 
Yeah. Uh, and then you might be able to organize to get more paid for by the work, but it doesn't really cut it. No. Yeah. And it's, but it's, it's degrees and it's degrees. It's, you know, you, you will have clients for whom hmm. just being able to sit and get out how they're feeling and have someone affirm that might be all they need. Yeah. And that's great. In which case that talk to a mate and, and trying to improve people's habits around talking about how they really feel is, is valid. I'm not going to say that's not valid. Of course it is. Mm. You know, we all feel better when we're able to sit and share and be listened to, but it's, that's, that's one part of it. That's the, you've got a headache, go for a walk and get some fresh air. Like that's going to be fine for a lot of people, for people who's, you know, who have something that's a bit more wrong with them. You know, it's, it seems like you either have, have that advice or we go all the way down to the mental health equivalent of you being rushed into surgery with a brain tumor, you mm -hmm. know, like there's very little of that sort of interim care. And yeah, just Mikey, what you said, you know, I've obviously worked with young people for a long time and it's the, there's school counselors and they do not have to be trained counselors. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone can be a, a school guidance counselor. And outside of, of that, there is very little for, young people that is genuinely affirming and validating mm. and yeah I've, I've had young people I've, I've worked with and they've had some horrendous stories about trying to get help and trying to be heard and listened to and having primary care just turn them away or not really uh believe them i think is one yeah. of the issues they come up with as well is just not being believed when they say that they're in distress and that especially for maori and pacific youth uh you know you've got so many issues around around access there at the best of times and it's mm. just it's so hard to move the needle on this stuff yeah like part of it is like what i hear like people talk about as the missing middle mm. um where you know like specialist mental health services at the dhb are funded um for the top three percent of mental health presentations and you know three sessions of counseling might be suitable for the people on like the more, you know, 3% moderate end, but then you have everybody else who are, you know, who, who are presenting with mental health issues for whom they need ongoing support of some description, but they don't need, you know, that they don't need that surgery level of, of care, yeah. you know, using that, that model, they don't need an inpatient mental health service or, or that sort of thing. And those are the, that's kind of the category where, a huge chunk of the um, suicides are kind of oper are, are occurring within, you know, where counseling's not quite sufficient, but what's being offered by the mental health services isn't going to be that valuable or is too out of reach of that any, or not being offered, you know? Yeah. And I think again, it's that it's, the, it's those barriers to access. It's that we have a very uh, Pakia system of access. And as you said, Kyle, there's those examples of people being coached into how to, how to answer questions in the right way to get what you need. Mm. But it, again, going back to, you know, you're trying to access ACC for something like that's as someone who has worked in government and has a good idea of how red tape works and how to advocate for yourself in a language that I am proficient in, although I am Scottish like this, you know, it was still a struggle. It was still extremely hard to get the help that I needed. And there will be thousands of people for whom the system is rigged against. Mm. And 
it will be, oh, no, you need to go and call this number and you have to go through the whole thing again. Oh, no, you need to talk to this person. You have to go through this whole thing again, only to be told that you don't qualify for something. Yeah. And it just it's not a it's not a system that allows. It's a system that that gatekeeps really, really hard. What? And then you have a government and people going, well, look at look at look at these terrible statistics. It's just just very sad. Mm-hmm. Probably no reason for it. It's just it's just natural law or something. But look, isn't it sad? A really stark example of that just came back up in the last couple of weeks, which was the inability of the system to even allow itself to work in the favour of people suffering mental distress uh, in the case of the Christchurch shootings, where, mm. you know, originally um, and in the weeks after that, I think it was Ian Lees Galloway uh, was Minister for ACC and he brought a paper to cabinet, which was essentially saying we can ensure these people have support via an ACC mechanism. It wouldn't set a precedent. It's just a really useful way to do this right now. And cabinet said, fuck off. Basically, um, mm-hmm. we, we can't do that because then it might open it up, up a challenge for all mental health to be covered under ACC. Uh, so we can't make an exception in this case. So even there where, you, you know, you're, you're saying, Ross, um, you're proficient in the language, you had the support system there to try and get this, and it was still hard. Yeah. Even the minister at this time, he had backing, I think, from Treasury, he had backing of a, an investigation saying that, you know, they could use this mechanism and make it work. And the system and the individuals making the decision said no. Yeah. It's something deeply wrong where you are denying critical mental care to an extremely traumatized group of people because you don't want to set a precedent like that. This, it, I, I was so upset when I read that I had to like get up and walk around the room, you know, like I was, mm-hmm. like, I was going to throw my phone across the, you know, into the wall. It's just this idea, like that's spite. Like I can't think of any other word to describe that. Like that's spiteful. There's a, ACC is almost self-funding. Like it's, we've got an mm. almost unique system that has all these long-term investments in petrochemicals or whatever the fuck it is. And, it, you know, it can pretty much fund itself. And I remember back when uh, National were in, in, in government and they dropped the ACC levies. And there was, oh, yeah. there was an expert on it who said, if we just kept these levies up for another five years, the system could be free. Like it actually run itself. And we could provide all of this stuff. And National went for the quick vote and they went, no, we're going to, you know, it's going to cost you $5 less a year to have the registration in your car, whatever the hell it was. And just the money is there. The need is there. But you can't have it. And I, I just, I can't, I can't parse it in any way other than fuck you. <laughs> Especially when like, they're like, we don't want to set this precedence of supporting people who need support. Like, how fucked is that? Like, it's just, it's, yeah, exactly. Isn't that? But yeah. they, they really are the, just, it, it really is like proper conservative Toryism with a, a hashtag be kind rainbow pride flag sticker mm-hmm. on the arse of it. Like, it's just, it, it, disgu- like, it actually disgusts me. I really can't. It's when you think about the cost of, you know, because these people will have post-traumatic stress disorder. And for people who don't know what post-traumatic stress disorder is, it's not just 
um, I saw something and it made me feel sad. It's a real physiological, psychological, ongoing like set of symptoms, which is massively debilitating. Like people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, like suffer from a wide range of symptoms, which can stop them from working. It can affect the relationships. It can, it can have, and just it's ongoing. And it's not something that you just like have a cup of tea and a chat with your friend over. It's like a, your brain has failed to deal with what it has seen or what it has experienced in a way that it can understand. So it basically, it's, it's like a corrupt file in your system and it just fucks everything else up and it actually needs support in order to become unfucked. And if you have seen something like the people in the mosques on those days saw, you, there is no numbers of gumboot fucking morning teas that can fix that. And these people will be dealing with this for the rest of their lives. Their partners will be dealing with it for the rest of their lives. Their kids are going to be dealing with it for the rest of their lives. And we know that we can fix this. We know how to fix post-traumatic stress disorder. Like it's, we know we've got the tools. We've got the people who can do it. Everything's in place to keep these, to help these people through this, not just like in terms of psychological well-being, but also if we want to be bastards about it in terms of their productivity, in terms of like the cost benefit, you know, people who cannot work need support in other ways. People who've got negative physical health outcomes because they've got post-traumatic stress disorder need to be paid for. So instead of fronting up the money to help these people get on with their lives and deal with what they have experienced, we're going to withhold that from them and cost everybody more and I cannot think of a reason why you would do that unless it's just to be a spiteful prick. It's it just, I, I'm, oh, I'm so mad. <laughs> yes, like I, set the precedent. I, yeah, exactly. And, and like the other thing that frustrates me about this specific situation is like ACC is not the only funding body we have that could be brought into place to provide this support. Like, the fact that we even kind of like have only, you know, like the government looked at it for ACC, but didn't think about actually using Ministry of Health money for this just kind of shows some of the problems inherent in our, in the system at this level of it, at that primary healthcare level. And like, if you, especially if you look back historically at the changes, you know, at ACC as an entity and some of the changes that it went through during like those um, more big transformative neoliberal years in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, um, which is kind of where we got this um, ACC public insurance kind of system. If you actually look at mental health rates at that same time, that was when we had a gigantic 50% increase in suicides. And we had a massive spike in anxiety, depression as well um, during that whole neoliberal like transformation stage when we withdrew all other um, support services, social services, cut benefits, um, just kind of like fucked people over and then set up a system where they can't even access mental health services. And we haven't, we've never actually clawed back from that point even, you know, yeah. um, like we've never had suicide rates go back down to they were to what they were pre that neoliberal shift that spawned ACC in the first place. And now we just kind of see, that structure and the impact it's had carrying on. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you can't, but this is just it. Like if, 
if the government was to admit that that was what was sitting at the heart of it, then you open up lots of other unpleasant questions, which mm. they are not. And I say they, they are not. And we as a whole are not willing to, to accept or discuss, you know, like we're not willing to have discussions around how we've got to a point where two people working full time cannot afford to buy a house mm. or, you know, like or rent a house sometimes or right? rent a house. hundred oh, yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I remember five years ago when Tepuya Marai and, and Mangare opened its doors to the homeless. Like that problem has not gone away. No. There are still families in this area living in cars. Like there's still mm-hmm. kids going to school with no breakfast. Like it's, and that trauma, you know, speaking of post-trauma, like that trauma, the intergenerational trauma, the personal trauma, like that feeds addiction levels. It feeds um you know enter intimate partner and domestic violence like it feeds all of these other things um and we can again we can fix this stuff but we won't because labor have got this desire to be seen as being fiscally responsible which seems to just translate to being sociopathic and as a larger society we're not willing to discuss the concept of collective responsibility and taking care of people because we're still stuck in this neoliberal mental health is just something that you choose to have. I didn't, uh, well, maybe I half expected to come uh, into this conversation with the result that uh, a benefit raise and rent caps were maybe the best direct solution to, to fixing our mental health issues. But yeah. I mean, clearly the, the factors on the ground are a really large indicator of, of how mental health is going to develop but alongside that, there does seem to be this, I don't know if it's ideological or just personal belief or, or whatever from, from our leadership, um, or if it's some kind of institutional inertia, or maybe, you know, all of the above, where, where things are put on a platter for them and those decisions aren't taken. Is that, in terms of the reviews that have been happening over the last um, number of years, Mikey, um, and some of that promised funding and trying to figure out where it goes, which of those feels like is having the most impact? Like, like, because I guess you've got the two different things. One is you have the, the, you know, history of decaying of our social services, which has led to increased inequality, and that's had a major impact. And there's one way that we can address mental health, but we've also had the decay of our mental health services through a whole bunch of different things. And, you know, like, I, I don't think that the cause of increased mental health problems is the decay of our mental health services as such. But I, I kind of think both of those things are happening and labor's just like, Argon's, oh yeah, there I am. Um, <laughs> like, um, you know, we've got both, both of those things are kind of processes and both of those things need radical change. And I don't see labor wanting to do much radical change with either of those things. I think that when it comes time to the mental health report being enacted, we're just going to see some tinkering around the edges. Um, and then that's it, you know, labor is still talking about, you know, putting school nurses in, in every school, but have had not much movement on that and have said, that's going to be one way that they'll address mental health. But where are those highly skilled school nurses going to come from? I like my job is training school nurses and it's not, we're not really going to get there. You know what I mean? So it just feels like they're tinkering around the edges of both of those things without any, like whether it is that political 
the lack of political will to do something radical, transformative, combined with that, you know, structural within the healthcare system inertia that we just can't shift these um, hegemonic powers. It, it's kind of both. And no, <laughs> fuck. And like to actually do that, I mean, I, I, I don't like, like with this um, New, Health New Zealand thing, that might bring some change around some of the bigger structures, but I'm not 100%. It's pretty radical in some, it, it, not radical, it's different. Mm. Um, yeah, um, you know, that is a major change. And it's interesting that they're willing to do that on such a large system level, but not actually address welfare issues, despite all the recommendations they had from the welfare working group. Um, and you know, I don't, I haven't seen the results from the mental health thing. I'm not sure if they're even out yet, but I doubt that they're going to be actually implementing why it's just going to be tinker around the edges. So. Yeah. And I think that's it, 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 same as it ever was, you know, like it's, you see it in, uh, you know, in so many other aspects, again, like having had experience in education and it's, it's just that feeling of the government will have reviews and they'll have reviews of the reviews and then there'll be a report made on the review. And it's like, we know what, I think fundamentally people know what's needed, you know, like you need people to have the basics so that they can live with dignity. You need people who've experienced a traumatic event to be able to get support after following that traumatic event. You need systems and processes in place to prevent traumatic events from happening in the first place. One of the things I'm really interested in is, uh, you know, working with uh, victims of sexual harm is how do you prevent that sexual harm from happening in the first place? So that seems like such a massive part of the discussion is always missed. Like there's very little provision to support people who are concerned about their behavior. Um, and I just feel like we know what needs to be done, but it involves talking about some things which people find a bit uncomfortable. So instead of having those big courageous conversations and actually moving the needle, we'll just review and we'll reflect and we'll, we'll, as you said, we'll just tinker around the edges, but not actually do anything that's going to make any meaningful change. Yeah, it feels like often we will have the mental health equivalent of a, a tooth magnet, right? Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah, my brain. It took my brain like I had to dredge back Twitter last week to get what that reference was. <laughs> forever in our, forever in our hearts, man. But, but you know what I mean, right? It's just yeah, yeah, just like hey, here's a here's a crazy new way to solve a mental health problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an app because it's always an app. Yeah, man. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And even I, like like some of um, some of the researchers I know who've developed apps in the past have then done research to show how ineffective apps are Um, (laughs) because like we have so many apps and there's heaps of research to shows apps are really effective and they are effective in the, if you um, use them under research conditions, (laughs) (laughs) but once they're in the real life, people use them for five days and never look back because it's not something they're going to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. So it's just, it's never, you know, Yeah, there's always a a disconnect between tech and and humanity as well. Right. Hmm. Um, I wonder but, why. <laughs> yeah. But there, there's a new app that um, I, I can't remember the name of it, uh, but it's being sold to workplaces. And part of it is that like employees are able to check in with their mental health 
needs each day. And if they, you know, are low, then there's a way to anonymously provide support to them. Um, I can't, you're making faces like maybe you know what it is. I can't remember what I, it's called. No, I'm just but, imagining the KPIs that are going to be associated with this in about mm, six months, you know, especially because there's a big cost to it. And, oh, you know, yeah. it, it was sparked by somebody who lost, you know, it was sparked with good intentions. Somebody who's a tech person lost a friend to uh, a family member to suicide and then came up with this idea, but there's no, it's, there's no evidence based to it. It's being implemented as a workplace intervention. Yeah. I think, so. you, yeah. And you, you raise it. That's another thing, like the, the corporatization of, mm. of mental health and well-being as well. Like, can you imagine letting your boss know on a day by day basis, your mental state? Mm. Like you like I, I, we do not exist in a place where that is not nah. going to be misused within seconds. <laughs> Dear God, but also that, yeah, you know, we've got EAP. Okay, great. Um, but it's that, like, the the sort of have you tried like workplaces? Have you tried yoga? Are we going to have a mental health day? We're going to have a morning tea, and there's never any discussion about what is it about our workplace that means mm. that we have lots of staff needing to access counselling. There's never any. Maybe we need to pay people more so that they're not quite so anxious about paying paying the rent maybe we need to make paying living like living conditions a little bit better it's like no as a workplace we've got someone who's come in to do yoga a couple of times so we've we fixed it now and again it comes back to that it's your responsibility it's your problem mm. and it, let's um let's do a survey but leave the questions intentionally vague so that we mm. can claim that we have good well-being <laughs> yeah like nobody is gonna answer a survey that says no i'm feeling extremely depressed as a result of my my working conditions and i can't like nobody's nobody's going to share that with their boss even if their boss is the nicest boss in the world because that's anonymous so uh you know say say whatever you want sure it is sure (laughs) (laughs) but yeah um, the dhps do these surveys all the time in their mental health services and the health services and they almost always find everybody is fucked (laughs) <laughs> they almost always find pervasive reports of bullying on the anonymous surveys and like very like high stress levels, low mood, especially so even within mental health services, which is like one of the most ironic things. It's why it's, it's, you know, such a, um, you know, an area where there's a huge turnover where there's very few people wanting to go in because we, we've also taken that corporatized kind of model, put it into our health services, even in the DHB level, and nobody wants to work there because you've got your KPIs, which are, how do you put a KPI on helping people? You know, mm. yeah. your budget says you got it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of, you know, for a lot of counselors, if you're providing, if you're providing counseling, that's, that's being funded, like you're expected to at the end of a session to ask your, your client, like on a scale of one to 10, how, how helpful do you feel that the session was Like you actually have to provide some, um, yeah quantitative data and i'm just like as someone who has provided counseling support you know at the end of that session it, it, it in a lot of cases you, you've you've done some really quite raw quite deep work the idea that you're then going to turn around and go you know can you just like on a scale of sad face to smiley face how do you rate the service that you've had yeah this actually relates to crass. my performance pay so um yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an, have you heard of NPS? Uh, so would you <laughs> would you recommend me to um, someone else who yeah. needed mental health support? Yeah, just give me a eight, nine, or ten if that's the case. Yeah, and like the worst, like because I see that with some of the funded, um, like some of the yeah, some of the funded mental health counseling services, 
where what's expected is when someone first sees a person, they have to fill out all these forms and get a baseline. And then when they last see the person, they have to fill out form and get an exit survey that ends up taking up, you get funded for counseling sessions. You use two, basically one for rapport and then filling in this form and the last one for closure and filling out another form. You end up only with two sessions, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, uh, and it's, it's useful to get that baseline and find out what brings someone to counseling, but the, the, the expectation that that's going to take an hour and it's going to be a, a root, you know, it's a root series of questions. And, and, a, and a lot of that is risk assessment. You know, you're trying to mm. find out if, you know, what, what level of, uh, of risk the client is at, which is fair enough, but yeah, you're right. If you've got four sessions funded and, one of them is is the assessment form and one of them is goal setting like you're <laughs> what's left yeah what's left yeah and you but, still have to build rapport like yeah. that's that's the most important bit like we know that like your modality doesn't matter as much as the actual personal connection that you build yeah so. absolutely hey that's- we're um we're coming up to time uh this has ended up being <laughs> pretty dark um, <laughs> oh, so, mate, we've ruined every listener's mental health but, uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, no, guys. I, but, but i think there's like we've managed to get into some stuff that we we don't often have open conversations about right um which is also really good but i did want to end on kind of something hopeful if possible um like what what can we look towards um or uh where can people look for help or where can they offer uh support or organizing or engagement to to help in these spaces oh that's yeah asking the asking the questions there (laughs) well like um like to be honest uh you know like i I come from like an anarchist background and that sort of thing so my usual response is fuck them we'll do our own things and you know like um some of the activist radical left groups in auckland have kind of put together a uh, mental health peer support group specifically so that um, we can be like, you know what, we're not going to get that support from these systems. So let's just do it ourselves and kind of have, have done that. And to be honest, I think a big chunk of it is that we got to just not like, we can't expect anything from these, from these people, you know, we mm-hmm. actually have to be building our own communities and that, um, mutual aid support that can extend beyond our material needs, but also the emotional, mental, spiritual needs as well. And that kind of, from in my perspective, although I'm doing work within the mental health system, I actually think community building um, that will be mo- will be more effective. Yeah, I just I, I want to talk with that actually. I think there's there's a real we talk about resilience a lot, and resilience has become one of these dirty words, but some of the best things that you can do is, as you said, is that kind of mutual aid that learning to, we talk about, you know, and I have taken the piss out of it a little bit today, but that, you know, sitting down for a cup of tea in a chat, like actually practicing really listening to people and actually being open and, and vulnerable with how you feel about things might feel a bit weird at first, but if you practice that for the small stuff, when it comes to sharing the bigger stuff, you're going to, you're going to be better at it. And that you know that's a really important skill and i think especially if you're in activist spaces if you're working in any kind of social justice like being aware of your own emotional well-being and 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 others and being able to offer that support before you burn out is really really important 
you know, like one one seven three seven has had a lot of variable press recently, um, but I I do know people who've had a good experience of it, and it, it it is something that is out there. So don't completely discount it. There are certainly, uh, you know, obviously as a member of the the Rainbow community, um, Outline is a free service that's available between six and nine, uh, seven days a week. They also have counselors, and um, they have peer support, as you said, like. We're going to do this ourselves. Like they've got peer support for um, trans and gender non-conforming people. Yeah, there's, like there's there's lots of groups out there working to keep each other and ourselves well. And just because your GP hasn't been able to help you doesn't mean that help isn't out there. Mm. Yeah. So that's not trying to be let's say too much of a downer, but certainly build your build your networks where possible. And that can be online as well. You know, we're all, we're all here because of Twitter after all, which is a hell site 99% of the time. But uh, I don't know. I honestly don't understand why people think that because I have a great time. It's nice for you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you yeah. uh, both so much for coming on um, and, and sharing your experiences and your knowledge about this this evening. If uh, people want to find you and uh, maybe on Twitter or other social media, Mikey, where can they do that? But don't find me. Don't find me. Why would, <laughs> you, why would you want to do that? Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, yeah, if you're a sucker, uh, <laughs> I'm like at Mikey the nurse on Twitter. Uh, not, my Instagram's not worth following. It's just it's just me posting photos of my cats and coffee mugs. There's no valuable content there. <laughs> Sounds like valuable content to me. <laughs> pretty feel pretty feel good content there. Uh, yeah. yeah, you can find me on Twitter at that bike dad. I I blog as well, but I post everything up to Twitter. Don't come and find me elsewhere because I'm not there. <laughs> um, so I to to our listeners, uh, find them or not. Um, after <laughs> some of those uh, glowing Going offline for my own mental health, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we really sold it. We really yeah, sold yeah, yeah. it. <laughs> Uh, glowing endorsements from themselves uh, yeah beautiful and if you've enjoyed this uh, share it around uh, if you feel like you've learned something from it I, I think it's really helpful to pass this on to friends and family um, who you think could learn something from it as well you can also find our articles and like at one of 200.nz uh, we're on twitter instagram soundcloud uh, and at the website so hit us up um Always happy to talk to people in the DMs as well, or if you just want to jump into my feed uh, and say any old shit, um, (laughs) I'll probably respond. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Good night. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full the relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism Capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays, no